0: Uh, Because I think this is a superb approach to actually getting people doing Elixir professionally.
1: What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Beam Radio. I am De Benedetto and I am joined today by co-host Lars Vickman. Hey, Lars. Hello. As well as Bruce Tate. Hi, Bruce.
2: Hi, from Chattanooga, Tennessee.
1: Bruce, I haven't seen you in a little while. I feel like we've missed each other on some of these episodes, so it's so nice that you're here, and I'm sure that our listeners are absolutely dying for an update from Graxio. Do you want to tell us what's new and what's coming up?
2: Sophie, we are actually working on our course schedule, so we're going to start next year with an open live view event, and we haven't done that for a long time, so it's just four to eight people getting together for a small professional class where the students do much, most of the coding, so... It's been pretty impactful for the careers as people get started with Phoenix Live View. Also, it's a great way for more experienced developers to kind of get a design aesthetic for the way things hang together in this this type of ecosystem. So if you're interested, check it out.
1: Awesome, thanks for that update. Uh, you know that I'm happy to hear that you're out there promoting Live View and helping people skill up in that area. So I hope that our listeners check it out. All right, so moving on today, we are joined by some very special guests to discuss a topic that I am really excited to dig into. We have Andrew Eck and Chris Nelson from Launch Scout. Hey, guys!
3: Hello, thanks for having us.
1: Andrew, did I say your last name right? It's two letters, so I feel like I couldn't have gotten it wrong. Absolutely did. Um,
4: You absolutely did, and it inspires doubt far more often than you'd think.
1: Yeah, I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not too surprised. I feel like we have very opposite last name problems. I have mm-hmm. like all the letters and you've got just two, um, but the struggle can be real.
0: I recently mm-hmm. heard someone refer to you as Sophie the Bandito. Which
1: is- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, for a but while. Dick.
0: I mean, that's a super common last name. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it actually is uh, in Sweden. So.
2: Wasn't there a like a Frito character that was the Bandito?
1: Mm-hmm. oh like bandito like bandit
2: it was yeah the frito bandito
1: oh yeah you know it's based on a true story it's based on me <laughs> nice. i have all the fritos if you go into my basement you'll see that's where they all ended up yeah.
0: if you want to go for the um, the brand sophie the bandit i
3: think that's <laughs> i could yeah. yeah
1: i could I definitely oh my could.
3: That i was watching On Thanksgiving, there was a marathon of all the Smokey and the Bandit movies that came on, and we had to suffer through.
1: (laughs) I feel like it's good Thanksgiving background noise.
3: It it actually was, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah.
2: We live Smokey and the Bandit here in Tennessee.
3: Oh, man. 10-4 good, buddy.
1: All right. So, uh, Andrew and Chris, thank you so much for joining us. We want to hear all about launch scout. We want to hear in particular about the Elixir developer apprenticeship program that you guys run there. But the first thing that we like to do with our guests when they come on the show is just ask you guys to share a little bit about your background in the beam, what brought you to beam programming and the Elixir community. And why don't we start with Chris?
3: Okay. Um, so yeah, um, my adventure with the beam and with elixir um, goes back, poof, um, somewhere between 2010 and 2015. Well, obviously later than that, but I know I was at the first elixir comp in 2004. The first elixir conf I was at was in 2015, so I know it has to go back that far. Um, what happened to us? Um, Launchpad originally started um, under another name as a uh, Ruby on Rails mostly dev shop and we started getting the point where you know we kind of watched huge organizations be super successful with rails and then like hit these walls where they felt like they had to move on to something else uh we saw groupon do it we saw living social do it um and uh you know the the solutions they came up with just didn't seem appealing to us so we started looking around for like is there kind of something that would let us have the same things we love about Rails, or as many of them as we could, um, but not hit those kind of um, scalability kind of bottlenecks. And uh, at first, we looked really hard at closure and kind of took a go at that organizationally for kind of a concerted effort of a few months. And we had one kind of outlier, James Smith. um, He's he's moved on to... uh, Adobe at this point. But um, James was kind of doing all his Elixir thing over on the side while the rest of us were checking out Closure, And uh, eventually, like, we just started looking at Elixir kind of one by one, um, and just really became compelled by it. And it was just so easy to get things going. And it was just fun. Um, and it was fun in the same way that when I first started doing Ruby, that was fun. And as a developer, um, it's just hard to argue with that. And, uh, so we started building apps with it. What we find is like, you know, we could take rails developers and they'd be building great apps in a couple of weeks. And, uh, and we just kind of never looked back from there and it's been a great ride and we've been, uh, kind of more and more choosing it as our default choice for building apps. And, uh, yeah, it's been great.
2: I think it's really interesting how so many people say that they came to to Elixir from Ruby experience and found something similar, though it's mostly the syntax, but you're the first yeah. person that I've heard that said, hey, something resonated in the community and the tooling that made it fun, which which I, I love, right? It's It yeah. goes all the way back to Matt's, right?
3: Right. It does. It does. And uh, yeah, that same kind of ethos is like built for programmer enjoyment. That Matt said that I've never heard anybody else say about a programming language um I don't know if I've heard Jose say that but it comes through somehow like it, it definitely it feels that way um yeah I'm gonna let Andrew share his journey oh sure um
4: I spent the first several years of my career mostly writing Ruby there's also some PHP and some Java in there um as as one does and so <laughs> We had, I was working, um, this would have been in 2017, I think I was working for a, uh, a payment gateway where we mostly had nonprofit organizations as our customers. They had these open donation forms, which were being just hammered by organized crime outfits um, to test stolen credit cards, just getting absolutely hammered by that. And that was a a Rails microservice thing. And I was asked to spike out a um, kind of a proof of concept to see if we could do some analysis of incoming uh, payments to figure out if they were likely to be fraudulent. So with that, it started with Ruby, but I found that I wanted a lot more concurrency than I could get with Ruby, but I still wanted something that was close enough to Ruby that I could sell it to my boss. had already been playing a fair amount with functional programming. Um, and it was around that time that Phoenix had a big release that was getting mentioned in one of the Ruby newsletters. And so I we went and bought Dave Thomas's book um, and thought, yeah, let's, let's give it a try. And so over the course of a couple of weeks was able to create a little service that would sit inside of our, um, inside of our transaction microservice ecosystem um, with some really uh, ridiculous performance capabilities relative to uh, relative to what we were able to do with Ruby at the time. Um, and that was kind of my introduction to Elixir. I would already been moving in the functional direction. I'd already been, it's pretty well established at that point in like the Ruby and Rails ecosystem. And then not too long after that, um i gave a talk about code review i was just like submitting this talk about code review and bruce and maggie um accepted that and had me come out to uh Lunchstar back in 2020 um which was basically a lifetime ago at this point but uh at 2020 um and that was you know i'd been dabbling but that was where i made the decision that i was going to swap um over to elixir as it was it felt like I could still get the same small teams doing big things that I could with Rails, but it also felt like the state management issues that you run into in a Rails app was smaller, uh, much, much smaller in Elixir. It was a lot easier for me to reason about things, and so I was having more fun writing code. I was being at least as productive and I was having a lot more fun. Um, so that was uh, kind of my journey. And so for the last couple of years, it's probably three years or so. Um, Elixir has been my primary language. Um, right now, I'm on a Ruby project, and it's very fine. But it's uh, Elixir is my primary language, and the you know, at least at Launch Scout uh, the majority of the new application development we do is in Elixir. We still take on Ruby projects from time to time, but most of the new stuff is Elixir, and so it's and I get to work with people like Chris, which is pretty fun.
2: So, by the way, that was a really good talk. Just a, you. a really good talk. From the feedback of our conference, it was one of, one of the better ones at the at the conference. But I wanted to know what it was about functional programming that captured you as you were thinking about this this Ruby style problem. What did hmm. they give you that, that Ruby didn't?
4: Um. So with the so with the application that I had been working on, there were. It was active record callback after after record callback after active record callback. Hmm. And so it became really, really, and a bunch of other things like that. We're using like the easy parts of Rails and the easy parts of active record. But it became really challenging to reason about state. And it became really challenging in these um, relatively complex workflows to trace execution um, And so with functional programming, more than anything, it was just, it it meant that as I started experimenting with it, um, as I started working with it, one of my colleagues at that job um, had been doing a lot of closure. And so with that, the thing that we found kind of organically was that as we tried to write functionally, it was just easier to reason about what our applications were actually doing um, rather than tracing tracing code all over the dang place um and so that was the big thing is just like how do i our application had grown so complex that i couldn't keep it in my brain anymore if i was trying to track all the different state permutations um and so the functional bits i think were kind of incidentally i was introduced to functional programming before i really knew about functional programming um but it just that made the code easier to work with. My colleague was able to say, well, if you like this, you should try out this other thing. And from there, off we went. I think that that's,
2: that's really wise. And, and one of the things that that you can see in all the functional languages, so rather than having the repository and the persistent thing be the same construct or the thing mm-hmm. that comes out of the database, you know basically the separation on the thing of the thing that works with the repository and the thing that comes out of it, that's kind of a fundamental concept that flows naturally out of functional programs, right? So Sophie and I talk a lot about the CRC and then layers on top of that, where the CRC is it's basically just functional composition and the boundary. And then when you have that composition and when you have the the motivation to cram more and more code in there and less and less in the boundary, life gets so much better. And so one of the things that made me most excited about Ecto as I was learning it was exactly what you said. It was this, this separation that, that you didn't have, you had those you had the repo, but then you had the repo and you separated out the query which was which could be composed with with something like a CRC. And then it returns something else which could be composed with in in the place that's that's magical for us, right? The, pa- the pipeline instead of the with land, right?
4: It also felt like so with object-oriented programming and Ruby, there's the question of where do I put the behavior? You know, am I asking this credit card transaction to refund itself? Am I asking the student to submit their grade? Like where do we put the behavior? And that becomes um that sometimes becomes challenging and in ways where the model almost works, but doesn't quite, you know, am I asking the door to open itself? Um, like sometimes that works it makes sense, but sometimes it doesn't. Whereas with uh, the functional programming, you know, when I submit a form data is getting sent along the wire um, and then things happen to the data. And so it became easier to say, well, I have my data and I have my behavior, and those are separate, rather than like, does this behavior live here? Does it not? Does it go somewhere else? Um, just organizing code became a lot easier um, with that, and thinking about where does this, you know, where does this behavior belong, became a lot easier to reason about, um, which I really liked. And then coming to Elixir, where you can do things like those uh, like those reducer change that you do. Um, and the composable ecto queries and tokens carrying through a reducer and pipelines, and just a relatively small set of transforms on a relatively small set of data structures. life becomes so so much easier in a lot of ways, which is pretty cool or simpler, I guess, not always easier, but
3: simpler. There are fewer moving pieces.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting take on the Elixir journey that I had not heard before. Thanks for that.
3: Yeah, that's an interesting take on things. Um, One of the things that I didn't mention that I think kind of drew me into Elixir was when I learned about gen servers and OTP, because I was very much coming from an object-oriented background. And when I came to functional, one of my big questions is, okay, I know I have state in my application. What do I do with it? And how does that work? And... Um OTP with this concept of message passing had uh, just brought me a comfort level that like, it frankly just got me over the hurdle of worrying about, you know, managing state. It's not like I use a gen server for everything, you know, as Bruce would very wisely tell us that would be a terrible idea. But knowing that it was there and understanding how it worked, made me so comfortable with the platform. Um, and, and that got me just, you know, I guess over the hurdle and more comfortable with functional programming in a way that, um, that I just hadn't experienced before.
1: So, um, I mean, there's so much to dig into there, and I actually think we'll probably revisit some of the themes that you guys have just brought up as the conversation evolves. But what I would love to do now is ask you guys to tell us a little bit about the Elixir Developer Apprenticeship Program that you run as part of Launch Scout. I think, um, this question and this topic of getting juniors into elixir and getting them hired and getting them skilled up is something that is very important to our community and it's very close to the hearts of most of us here i know me and bruce in particular and and lars too given the work that he does and the team that he works with so anyway i would Uh, love to hear all about it please do tell us
3: sure um i guess i can go ahead and start and then have you jump in andrew um Launch Scout started um, back in 2009. So it was like right in the middle of the um, implosion of the economy and, and all this terrible stuff was going on. But for that particular recession, um, software development was just so much less affected than any other industry. So as the partners we were looking at and seeing people we know that were just having a terrible time. And we started really thinking about, like, how could we make the field of software development more accessible? And it became something that, uh, I don't know, just really spoke to us. Um, And then um, fast forward, I guess, a few years to, I think, maybe 2014. And I started seeing these software development intensive programs start up and become successful um, I think the first one I heard about was uh, Chad Fowler's experiment at living social. I don't know how many people are familiar with that one. Um, but then what I did is I got a chance to um, do like a guest teaching spot at Dev Bootcamp in Chicago. And just coincidentally and extremely fortunately for me, uh, Dev Bootcamp in Chicago at that time was run by Dave Hoover, who wrote the book Apprenticeship Patterns. Um, so I got to come out there and teach. And frankly, I came into the program with, you know, i don't I don't know that I focalize this too much, but some amount of skepticism of like, could you really become an effective developer in that short of amount of a time? And uh, what I saw from these final projects that these students were doing is they they just like blew me away. They just totally knocked my socks off. Um, so it was like an obvious like, yes, you can do that. Um, But I also got a chance to kind of because they had multiple cohorts going through at the same time I'd see like these students in different phases of the program and then one of the phases that I got to see was like, after they graduated them kind of launch into their job search and. Uh, At the time in 2014, you know, the the economy had completely recovered uh, and and it was just gangbusters like it is so often in terms of hiring developers. Like all our clients were like, we can't hire enough developers. Ah, What do we do? Um, But when I watched these students go out into the world, um, like naively, I just sort of assumed, okay, they'll just immediately get snatched up because I could see they were building stuff that was like, yeah, they're developers. Like they were getting stuff done. They were doing stuff. Um, but they weren't. Uh, and they seemed to struggle and not have a great place to land. And their entry into the field was like jumbled and chaotic. and it just it seemed like there was just an obvious gap between like all these clients that were saying they needed to hire folks and these people coming out and struggling to find jobs. And it just seemed like a just gigantic hole that I felt like maybe we could try to step in there and and bridge that gap and fill that hole. And it could be like a doing well and doing good at the same time, if that makes sense. Um, And that was extremely compelling. Um, And so that kind of launched me on a course of starting to talk to Dave. And of course, I read his book on apprenticeship patterns. Um, I started looking around for organizations that I could trial that with. Uh, I think it was definitely Dave's suggestion that uh, six months is a good length to do for an apprenticeship because um, we were really sold on the concept of of pair programming. It just made sense to me that you shouldn't hire apprentices one at a time. You should hire them in at least pairs. Uh, And those kind of tenets have been kind of the the core of the program and, and, you know, in a nutshell, the idea is just, we take, uh, an experienced developer. Um, originally I, I, I was the first one to kind of fill this role who serves as the mentor to these apprentices for six months. Um, they go on, on a fully, you know, they go on a team that has real pressure, you know, that, that is actually developing software that one of the key things is like, they're not on a side project to learn. They're not on, you know something that might be valuable or not. You know, um, in a lot of ways, the pressure of working with a real team that has the actual constraints of software development and needs to get stuff done, but also is doing valuable work. All those kind of constraints and pressures are kind of essential for like, how do we help these people that have learned to code? um really become fully effective uh development team members over that six months so when we found a client organization and it was kind of a little bit of randomness uh at work in a great way uh, i did a blog post on this idea and uh, i think i was at my daughter's group violin lesson (laughs) and somebody there another dad um that happened to, to know who I was and work at a really large tech organization in town came up to me and said, hey, we've been talking about this idea internally and like, you should come have lunch with my manager. And uh, he was this really kind of progressive manager in this large, large soft organization, software development organization. And uh, he gave it a go with us. And uh, that was the first apprenticeship team we had back in 2016 that kind of launched us on our way. Oh man, I learned so much from that first one and I did uh, along the way, but I want to give a chance to, to Andrew, to to kind of uh, talk about his journey a little bit too. But um, yeah, this is such a topic that I'm such, so, so excited about. I could just keep talking forever. So I'm going to take a pause and let Andrew talk a little bit too.
0: I'll just briefly interject that it's been my experience as well that watching People that are excited to get started with programming, hit the market, oh, and then just struggle to gain any traction anywhere and go through sort of torturous interview cycles, and just endless, yeah. endless job postings that say three to five years of experience. Yes. It's just heartbreaking because it, I know I, I didn't have that experience when I started. It required someone to take a chance on me specifically to get yeah. my first job. And after I got that first job, it was never a question of getting a job again.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because once you have one to two years under your belt where someone has paid you for the work, it's usually no problem. Yeah. But no one wants to take on that first six months to a year for some ungodly reason. <laughs> There's just no, I think most companies don't have the infrastructure, but, but yeah, it's a heartbreaking situation to watch. I agree.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, it's for those of us that have been through it, it's, it's very easy to sympathize and to feel like, of course, I want to help people who are in this position. Uh, like you said, it's heartbreaking to see, but I also want to say that, um, I think there are some selfish reasons too to support people at that stage of their career and to train them oh, up and sure. build them up in that way. And I completely I'm agree. Andrew like not aggressively. And Chris is agreeing. So my question for you guys is, um, how has this program benefited the work that you guys do? Benefited Launch Scout? Benefited your clients? Uh, or or has it?
3: Oh man, so many ways. You, but I want to give you a chance to talk. Andrew, go ahead. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, either of us
4: can go. But yeah, um, I. Uh, So I was a teacher for almost a decade before I became a software developer. I taught mostly English and math, but other things too. Um, And when I became a software developer, I'd been kind of working on my own to prepare for that. Uh, But I got my first job because someone took a chance on me. I had several people who were looking out for me and one of them jumped first. And was able to take a chance on me and that's uh so it's anomalous in that regard most most people I know who did the career switch did not have that experience that I did um but as far as making things better I mean yeah sure we get the we get the warm fuzzies of helping people I've got two apprentices right now and it's been so cool to see them growing and progressing and being able and like building relationships with the uh with my client, the organization that will eventually hire them at the end of this apprenticeship, it's been so cool to watch. Um, but also, it being forced to kind of come back to the fundamentals makes me a better developer. Yeah, in a, a lot of cases, um, because of my, in a lot of cases, my role on a project is to lay some foundation, hand it over and move on, or to untangle weird and gnarly bugs, or to like spike out a prototype to see if something is even possible. I don't get to do a whole lot of, I mean, for better and worse, I don't get to do a whole lot of just like bread and butter feature delivery. It is a lot of, it's, it's the other stuff around it. It is researching vendors. It is, um, tracking down stakeholders. I, I don't get to do a whole lot of the bread and butter stuff, but when I work with the apprentices, I do,
1: mm-hmm.
4: you know, their task is to add a button that when clicked does a thing. And the thing is, I mean, some crowd interaction, right? Some, some crowd behavior. Um, and for me, I've done this a bunch of times, but for them, it's their first time. And so we get to talk about like, how do we approach this and why do we do it this way versus another way? Or what are our options in terms of working with this and how do we what exists within the code base already that we can play with versus what do we have to contrive of our own um and that yeah that makes me a better developer it makes makes it yeah it makes it so that i can remember what it is like to do the work that i am supporting um, a brief aside, so I used to teach creative writing and in the summers I would travel around and teach creative writing teachers, how to teach creative writing, which, and the exercise that we did was deeply painful for them sometimes, but I would just have them write. Um, and for some of them, you know, they have been teaching creative writing for like 15 years, 20 years, 30 years. And they would say, oh gosh, last time I wrote anything, I was in college. I've just been assigning mm-hmm. things and grading them. It's like, "Well, oh, okay, that's cool. Um, but you also have to know what it feels like to do the work in order to, like, be able to support the work. You don't, you, know, you don't have to be doing it every day, and that was deeply uncomfortable for for some of these folks. Um, the ones who were open to it, I think, found it a little bit transformative, a little bit like, oh yeah, maybe, maybe this should change how I'm giving feedback to my students. Maybe this should change how I, how I do things, um, and that was. And so the cool thing, I guess, about working with apprentices is that I get reminded of the discomfort of having to do some of these things for the first time. And I get reminded of how challenging, frankly, this field is sometimes. Um, we have a lot of tools that make things easier, but by golly, it's, it's also a lot of stuff in our brains.
3: It it really is. I'm yeah. Yeah. I'm struck by a, a lot of those same things. And, um, I think it was that very first apprenticeship where uh, my expectation coming in was like, I'm the mentor. So one of the things that, that we do in our apprenticeship program very specifically is we're going to an organization and we're saying, we're going to do this apprenticeship to help you guys grow developers for your organization. And one of the things we bring is like, okay, we know your senior developers are tapped out and overwhelmed. So rather than putting this and I'm going to use air quotes here, burden of mentorship on your senior devs. We're going to bring a mentor from our side to to do that. So that was like the intent. That was how I thought it was going to work. What I found was when I went into a team with a couple of other experienced devs on it and brought the apprentices with me, I mean, part of it was a good fortune. I just had a couple of great people on that team. Um, But not entirely. Like What happened was the other two devs on that team were like, Uh, when they saw the apprentices and like the enthusiasm that Andrew kind of mentions, they just couldn't help themselves, but jump in and want to work with these people and and help these people. And, and so it wasn't like I was the mentor. It was like the team was the mentor and that's the ideal for sure. You know, I'm facilitating, I'm helping steer and guide, but the more, if I'm, if, if in that mentor role is, if I quickly fade into uh, I'm just another developer as part of that team and the team is mentoring the apprentices. That's amazing. But one of the other things that I observed is uh, you, you, you talked about benefits. Um, the apprentices made that whole team better. And the way they yes. did it is in addition to like, you know, uh, I was at the point of my career of like, you know um passion, enthusiasm, like I think Bruce talks about it being a renewable resource or somebody does, but like it had kind of ebbed. I was a little Mm -hmm. bit, a little bit burned out. And when I saw things through the apprentice's eyes, all of a sudden, like things were exciting again. The other thing it did is um, the other devs on the team would talk to me about like they were doing things better than they would have otherwise because they wanted to set a good example of the for the apprentices. Um, As far as like concrete skills, I teach them, you know, the most fundamental one I teach um, that I really want all my, my apprentices to get experience with is the cycle of test driven development. Um, for where they are, you know, uh, if you talk about the Dreyfus model being on the beginner, a beginner needs patterns and kind of rules-ish to follow. And TDD is by far the best one that I know in terms of like, yeah, it's going to guide you towards producing high quality software. Um, so the other devs on the team would tell me, like, yeah, I'm writing tests. I'm doing TDD in a more disciplined way than I would otherwise, because i want to be a good example for these apprentices and the side effect is oh i'm doing better work the team is better overall and i feel like that's you know this extra effect that apprentices have on on making an entire team better and i i really believe at this point that at least as far as like sustainable development over time a team that has a mix of experienced developers and Uh, other skill levels including apprentices is a healthier team in the long run than just a team of all super experienced devs that frankly eventually you're going to find things to argue and bicker about and (laughs) and not get anything (laughs) done because they're debating silly stuff like we do (laughs) Um,
0: juniors can really keep you honest yeah Mm -hmm. where like as you grow more experienced it's very easy to sort of Start to rely on shortcuts or like, yeah, I know the fastest path to yep. solving Absolutely. this. Absolutely, yeah. But that often also means like, I don't need to document this. I know exactly what I built. Absolutely. I don't need to build tests for this. It's a trivial yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, be which fine. means you also leave a trail of undocumented, unknown implementation. Yeah, which is super easy to do under time pressure it's like the default outcome of time pressure mm-hmm. yeah. but if well, you're trying so... to teach someone how to do it correctly you sort of have to step up a little bit and,
1: and if you're trying to collaborate yeah. with people that are newer um and you know would need that documentation for that feature that maybe you know inside and out but they don't you know you have to provide those resources and i think um yeah you guys both just kind of took the words right out of my mouth i think Folks who are newer to programming and earlier on in their career, they are interested in doing things more correctly than I think those of us who are out of (laughs) energy and optimism sometimes feel. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. One, they're excited and they're learning. And two, they need, like you said, Chris, they need those patterns um, and they need those guidelines often to, to be as productive as they can be. And so they they use the processes and the techniques that, like you said, make the entire team better and they evangelize them and they get other people excited about them. And so I think that um, I think that teams are more productive and they write more robust, easier to maintain code when you have this kind of diversity of backgrounds and skill levels and experiences involved. When you have those people that are new, that are excited, that are still learning and that are, um, you know, interested in and care about doing things correctly whereas like you said Lars maybe the rest of us have kind of uh yeah I know how this works I'm just gonna fix it up real quick and move on to the next thing
4: well it's easy to get complacent I mean we can we hit our uh, barometer maybe that's the right metaphor here we hit a point of stasis where it's like this works well enough yeah this thing that I'm doing works well enough yeah absolutely Um, and we also, I've seen this happen, especially with um, more senior teams fall into the trap of everyone has their own little domain. Oh my God. That they are, are you following me around for. at work? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, <laughs> but the joy of consulting is that I get to change projects mm-hmm. every three to six That's months. True. And so we get to find a, a brand new team with its own little silos. And so with the current team that I'm, uh, the current client. They've got 15 or so devs on st- staff who are split between a backend, a JavaScripty frontend, and a mobile app. And a thing that's really interesting about having the apprentices around is that when the apprentices ask about how something works, we um, have been coaching them to ask these things in their public uh, channels. Other people will say, oh, I also want to know how this works. And so all of a sudden, I'm doing these like Rails deep dives with mobile devs who say, yeah, I understand kind of the top level like GraphQL bits, but I don't really understand how to get into this thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And we're we're just doing those things. And so it becomes really fun um, to like share that knowledge. And I get to sit down with the mobile devs. I know nothing about mobile development. Um, And so I get to sit down with them and they can show me what they're doing because they're also showing the apprentices what they're doing. So having those new people provides all sorts of really cool opportunities to learn from each other that frankly, I don't think otherwise would happen. Certainly not with the same frequency.
2: Yeah, I think that that's, that's really cool. And, and one of the things that that I get the the opportunity to see is I am working with small team after small team in a training situation, and I get interactions that I don't expect. And the first thing that happens Without fail, is that I'll get a team of mostly um, intermediate or senior developers, and they'll be frustrated with all of the questions that come out from uh, from a more junior developer for a little mm-hmm. while, and then they will see that all of those questions expose gaps in the underlying abstractions that they don't understand, and so. One of the things that we do, especially in our OTP class, we we see, we let the intermediates teach the juniors as they as they come in and as their gaps in understanding. I get to I get to exercise that mute key, and it's really excellent, right? Hmm.
4: And so that's uh, Vygotsky's zone of proximal development. You learn yep. better from somebody who's a little bit more skilled than you are. Drivers. Um, as far as progression faster than you do from somebody who's a lot more skilled. So yeah, there's in the Dreyfus model also. Yep, yep. There's there's a lot there.
2: Right, right. And so yep. the other thing that happens often is that one of the one of the questions that I get from management is how quickly can we apply these new graduates to to our teams to to deliver production software? Expecting me to say, oh, you need to wait. And my answer is always the same. If you apply them earlier, you will see your code quality improve because we're working on techniques for design that, that increase the ability to layer systems so that novices can understand it. And if they're applying core principles correctly, what we're seeing is code that should have been extracted in the first implementation. This yeah. happens over and over and over again. And I think that that comes from, from I mean, I teach design, but that also flows out of mentoring often and smoothly. And, and that that happens with, with apprenticeship in every single instance.
4: Yeah. And tying this back to Elixir, a thing that Chris and I have talked about is how anecdotally it seems like it's a lot faster to get a junior developer or an apprentice level developer oriented in an Elixir code base then it seems to be for an equivalent Ruby code base, for example. And this is straight anecdote. I don't have data mm-hmm. to support this. I um, think you're right. Uh,
3: yeah. Yeah. It's, right. it's, yeah, it's anecdotal, but, um, yeah, we, we, uh, you know, our apprenticeship, we've done apprenticeships in a huge variety of technologies and, um, I've got a chance to observe, you know, apprenticeships where it was JavaScript on the front end and Java on the back end, for example. And some of these, you know, frankly, um, platforms that are definitely not designed primarily for developer productivity, um, it's a real struggle. For them to 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 come up to speed on those things, sometimes um, as it is for any other developer, but for the last couple of sets of apprentices, we've had them come up to speed on you know we've had them do the apprentices or apprenticeships in Elixir, and I've been really um, amazed how quickly they've become extremely productive. To the point that, you know, at, at Codebeam, we had like three apprentices in the last two sets that were speaking at the conference. I mean, That's that, amazing. Could be, that could be coincidence, but I don't think so. You know, the fact that they were able to become that productive in that platform that quickly, uh, I think there's there's something there to the platform. You know, we had actually it would be great to to talk to her at some point, but we had uh an apprentice who, um, oh gosh, I think she graduated just in the last year, Caitlin Burns, who yeah. gave, gave a talk about. She gave uh, a great talk. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, Elixir helping her love the back end, you know, I, I feel like is yeah, it's just a, a testament to the platform itself and how um, it really is enjoyable and it just, get so much non-essential complexity out of the way for people.
1: So I'd love to, to dig into that a little bit more. I'm just curious to hear um, what you guys think it is about Elixir and your experiences with these apprentices that helps people skill up so quickly and helps them be productive and impactful so early on in their careers.
3: Um, I, I mean, a, a lot of it is really the, the fundamentals of... Um, the elixir heritage coming from ruby um, there's a lot of thought and care into designing the language in a platform in a way that's um enjoyable and productive um but then there's also um you know these are some of the first apprentices we've seen go through in primarily or almost purely a functional language and I think that does make a difference because, you know, with an object-oriented language, the the context that you might have to consider just kind of like spider webs into infinity, if you will. With, with a function, everything that you see in that function, even if it's complex, it's right there. You have the parameters coming in and you have the things that you return. I mean, you might reach out and do side effects, of that, but that's so much more primarily what you have to deal with and it's just so much less context to try to get in your head i think it really does make for a more successful experience for these apprentices to get started with and um you know that's generally what what i've heard people tell me um you know we have had some people now um it might be worth collecting more of their experience um, than I can do secondhand. But we've had people now that have started with Elixir and then gone to do some work on a Ruby project. And seeing that process that's like backwards